0: You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with hosts Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 385 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by the usual cast of characters, Seth Miller and Fosma Moon. Gentlemen.
1: Good evening. Happy birthday to us.
0: Yes. We were going to do something big.
1: So, and then we
2: almost barely did anything at all. Yes, when we hit four hundred, do do balloons fall out of the ceiling?
0: <laughs> Whose ceiling? I guess is the
1: question. In each of ours. <laughs> so we we got a little bit of a celebratory budget, but I'm not sure I've got that in it. <laughs> so we got what we got we fifteen
0: doing? fifteen more episodes. That's fifteen weeks. Yeah, we could probably do something big for four hundred.
2: That's like two, Almost three months. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's somewhere in August.
0: Yeah, we could, we could do something. Um, we have a little bit more follow-up about Sky Club access, uh, and the changes. They're not that bad, I guess.
1: Well, no, they're still terrible, but, uh, (laughs) there were two major changes. One was that they were going to only allow passengers in up to three hours prior to departure. And the other was no access on arrivals for members. And the latter, the no access on arrivals has been due to significant uproar has been walked back.
0: So they are listening to customers. Surprising.
1: But, but a, not but nice talking change. to them before making, you know, significant policy changes. So win some, lose some, I guess.
0: I, I guess so. <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is good for arrivals, especially kind of like what we were talking about, right? Like you come in from a red eye, you want to take a shower. Or you come in and uh, you just need to get some work done before you hit, you know, you, you drive to the client or whatever you're doing. Um it's a nice feature. Still kind of kills some of the things we were talking about where you show up early and want to get some work done. If it's outside of three hours, no no dice.
2: Yeah. So I guess, I mean, that is an interesting question. Say, you know, you're on a 6 p.m. flight. You get to the airport and you stand by for a two o'clock flight. And do they go by the standby time or the confirm time?
0: <laughs> Foz with your pedantia.
2: It's an it's a reasonable question.
1: Yeah. And it could, is. You, could you stand by, get confirmed, enter the lounge, and then switch back to your original flight and just hide in the corner? I'm sure you could do. I mean, that. no one's going to come over and ask you to leave. So, yeah, once you're in, you're in, right? There's no real policing. One hopes.
0: I wonder. I wonder if they're building it into the system, the check-in system for the Sky Clubs, or if like if they're leaving so. it up to the agents to do it. Yeah. If, you, you know what I mean. Like at the United clubs, it feels like. It's all built in. So if it, if it gives you a green light, like it se- doesn't seem like the agent to do anything except look at the screen when you scan your yeah. boarding pass.
1: <laughs> well, or an, an exception happens and it doesn't scan right and then they can go figure it out. Yeah. But yeah.
2: Yeah. If it's attached to the boarding pass, right, which would be club members and
1: um, Star, Gold. Oh, Star Gold. But if it's not, then they have to do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, to, like Turkish has done that for a long time. The lounge, even before they moved to the airport, had like just self service entry gates mm-hmm. and you could walk over and scan. And, you know, you if you were supposed to get in, usually the gate would just open. And that was a huge time saver and made it way more fit, especially that lounge, which was both busy. very large and yeah. very busy. Um, but, like, you know, every now and then, mine wouldn't scan and have to go stand in line. But that's not entirely new at all. Yeah, yeah SAS did that in Copenhagen, too. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I guess it's it's some good news, some bad news. You win some, you lose some. Uh, but, again, I mean, it comes down to them cracking down on people sitting in the lounge for hours, I guess, eating yeah. them eating them of all of their shelf-stable cheese. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> uh,
1: so I think anyway. Consumption I think of a seat is more an issue than consumption of cheese cubes, but sure, we'll go with
2: it. <laughs> well, if you have enough cheese cubes, then you'll be occupying a seat in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so more consolidation in Latin America. What is this, Seth? We've had, so we had Avianca, right? And so Avianca
1: and uh, Viva Colombia, Viva Peru wanted to merge. Now they want to bring Goal. The Brazilian airline into the okay, mix. Yeah. Isn't that what um, the remnants of Varig? Is it? Isn't
2: Gull the remnants of Varig? Right? Because it wasn't Tam, it was, I remember being in a gull lounge and finding a Varig glass in there.
1: I could just because I didn't throw them away yet. I mean <laughs> Um But I thought there were some there was some really there, there might be. i uh it does own the brand Varig. Um, although, that is n- I'm reading Wikipedia. That is uh, the new Varig, founded in 2006, not the extinct old Varig, founded in 1927. But they still own the brand. So, Which, for yeah.
2: anyone who's curious, Varig was one of the original five members of Starlines.
1: Yeah, and an old, old Brazilian airline that had some... Uh, uh, they, yeah, they did purchase the assets of Varig out of bankruptcy in 2007, looks like. But, See, I actually didn't make that one up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so they want to they want to include goal in this merger
1: well so it's a separate merger now but like a second one which that part of me want like do they have to get the first one approved to make the second one happen but where this one gets interesting is that both like goal has a know goal or goal anyway has a partnership with american airlines to since american lost latam as its partner in south america to delta uh it grabbed goal to be its brazilian partner and united has avianca and then there was supposed to be an avianca united copa joint venture um so there's a lot of sort of moving parts there and even competition amongst uh partners or competing interests but Mm -hmm. this is one of those they're trying to do a like it's just going to be a big holding company and all the airlines will operate independently and everything will be fine. But you know, all the money gets pooled in the end and it sort of goes back to what I said last time. It's like that, that's, that's cute and whatever, but it's not even quite to the same level as the European model of sort of big parent company owning lots of airlines because those are generally much more coordinated. And even if they don't want to admit it sort of partners and right, loyalty programs exist, you get, you get, IAG group, right? International mm-hmm. airline group, which is BA, uh, Iberia, Aer Lingus, Welling, who else? Um, Open Fly, Open Skies, but that's gone now. Right? They had all those brands and, like, theoretically they all compete with each other, but not really. Mm-hmm. And they coordinate, you know, the Lufthansa group with all its five airlines or whatever, and they all coordinate purchases and things like that of seats and planes and whatnot, or even, like, it's, it's hard for me to see those as true competitors, even though ostensibly they are supposed to, because um, right, they don't have antitrust immunity in all their markets. But so. I, mean, I mean,
0: they're clearly not competitors, right, in Europe. Right. Because, because like, even fares are coordinated when you look at you know, certain fairs to Europe or within Europe, More. they coordinate those fares completely.
1: So transatlantic or in various joint, market, joint venture markets, they're allowed to coordinate. Okay. But like within Europe, I don't believe they are. And right, does like Lufthansa group, you know, can will do things like Lufthansa flies Frankfurt to Vienna a couple times a day and Austrian flies a couple times a day. But they alternate they stagger times rather than competing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And even if they don't technically coordinate fairs, um, there's a little bit of, you know, wink and nod on fair stuff, I would imagine. But like they can they sort of happen to think that this is the best schedule. Like, I don't know. There's, and I have to double check to make sure they don't actually have antitrust immunity for the group within Europe. But
0: yeah, cause that's an interesting one, right? Like we're talking about this, like, let's say, let's say this goes through with, with Gall and, and okay. Avianca and everybody in South America, but like, there's only so many flights and carriers within South America to get you from Argentina to, to Brazil, to Chile, to, you know, Colombia. So, you're going to have to coordinate at some level to make sure there's enough coverage for the number of passengers you have. Right. And I, I, I mean, they can pretend that they're not going to coordinate, but I, I think that's a farce.
1: Yeah. And so I mean, whatever competition is to whatever level it is. And in some ways, right. This is also a situation like, I don't think that Avianca was going to, there used to be an Avianca Brazil. Let's also not forget that. And it went out of business a couple of years ago. Um, I don't think they were going to ever re-enter Brazil. And this is certainly a, a better way but mm-hmm. i i just i don't buy the we don't compete at all argument even though they'll continue to make it
0: and i mean united still has a partner down there in brazil in mean, azul right
1: so united will have the partner with azul but it will also have avianca for the columbia stuff it's like how does how do you coordinate those schedules and make sure that everybody's getting what they need yes yeah. complicated very strange
0: yeah. Um, there's a Star Alliance credit card coming. Oh, yeah. We don't usually talk about credit cards on here, but, but tell me about this. One's this one's crazy. <laughs>
1: um, so Star Alliance celebrated its 25th birthday uh, last week. And as part of that, had a media briefing and offered up a whole sort of like, you know, what the future holds, blah, blah, blah. A lot of talk about biometrics and digital transformation and stuff like that. But also noted there's going to be a... Intermodal partner in Europe, so I'm obviously assuming it's Deutsche Bahn, but maybe we'll, maybe I'll be wrong. But there's going to be a non airline alliance partner. Okay. Uh, I don't know what benefits that brings or anything else, like, but yeah, that'll be interesting. And there's going to be a new credit card launched in Q3. Allows for redemptions on all the partners, and that's the only detail we have. <laughs>
0: next thing we'll hear is united is devaluing devaluing its currency and removing availability
1: well so <laughs> it, didn't, didn't they already do that
0: that's not the joke T- today ends
1: in why? Um, <laughs> no so for years uh going back to at least to 2018 uh the current starline ceo jeffrey go is his name he's from singapore airlines uh he's been talking about trying to make a sort of common interface that allows for coordinated alliance-wide settlement and interchange of stuff. And this is sort of like, you know, Starnet is the name of this sort of backbone that the airlines all communicate across. This is sort of a souped up version of that or a enhanced version that just adds more features. And one of the interesting things about it is he sort of talks about being able to do things like uh, dynamic award redemption pricing. And even back in 2018-2019, he was talking about how more than half the Alliance members offer some sort of dynamic priced award redemption, and and sort of hinted that that was the future of the loyalty program. We've obviously seen an even stronger push into that for some of the member airlines in recent, you know, over the past couple of years, recent months, recent years. Uh, I do wonder if this new program essentially becomes you've got quote unquote star alliance points. Mm -hmm. And those are redeemable for what's basically a shared dynamic pricing amongst the airlines. So you can sort of each airline can say, Oh, this segment costs that this segment costs this and in award points and dynamically it will add up all the points that you need and say, here's the number plus a, you know, plus taxes or whatever. Yeah. And I guess one of the airlines will issue it, right? Like Lufthansa issues the online version of Starlines around the world tickets. So I guess they could do something like that for the issuing part. But that's my best guess of how it would play out. Obviously, without any details, who the hell knows? But the Alliance is super keen on that uh, sort of dynamic redemption and whatever happening. Hmm. So for more ways to screw us, most likely. Yeah, screw I mean, offs <laughs> is a strong term, but yeah. Um, the uh, other yeah. thing I'm trying to... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask. I just have to ask. Do, like, when you hear
2: airlines and digital transformation, do you think that's an oxymoron? I just think they're bad at it. Ooh. Generally speaking, that would be an understatement. <laughs> Very bad at it. You know, they downright <laughs> suck at it.
1: Most do, yes. I, I think the problem I have with digital transformation is most airlines are like, "Oh, we have an app and you can book rental cars in it. We're digital now." But it's not even an app anymore. It's a mobile. It's a web interface. It's a mobile web interface for most of these apps. Hey. I care less. I care less about that than the fact that like saying you can book rental cars doesn't make you digital. <laughs> but, this is fair. Um,
0: this is true.
2: But seriously, right? they're talking about a credit card for Starlines. They've been talking about the unified booking system for Starlines since they began. Like, what are the real chance of this is going to succeed?
1: I could see the credit card. So Maybe. Where, but, but, what but geography would you issue the credit card
2: in? See, and that's what I was going to go for, right? The credit cards tend to be really successful in the US, but there's also – you end up offering a lot more bonuses and stuff, whereas –
1: other parts of the world, the bonuses and things are never as aggressive.
0: Yeah.
1: Keep keep in mind that a huge part of that is tied to interchange rates, right? So the, the merchant effectively pays for all the points issued because when you swipe a card, the merchant pays typically speaking somewhere between two and 3%.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and so the, the bank can afford to buy the points and still make money with that transaction. Um, like Europe has a cap on, as a, a cap on the man, or mandated cap on the interchange rate that makes, I think it's under 1%. So it makes it much harder to issue points in the same way. I also like, and so like the the programs can't be, can't give as many points for purchases because the banks can't afford it. But also there's the part where I can't imagine star Alliance would be issuing cards in a market that is competitive with any of its members. What, what United Airlines would shit its pants if Star Alliance be like, oh yeah, we're gonna issue we're gonna issue Star Alliance points to people who use to read them on your flights too.
2: But I mean, it was, well, let's take a step back, right? Why are the cards generating so? Why are the cards so prevalent these days, right? It's because the airlines are selling points in bulk. So are we now saying that Star Alliance is going to be send, selling points in bulk to some issuing company? Because that's not even a currency right now. So the, do they have to create a new currency? Well, this is where I think the dynamic points thing comes into play but it, but it, the data because when i read the uh, press release it was you could transfer points into any program is that how they're doing it that's what i read Now, th- that might be conjecture at this point but that is what i read when i when i saw this thing pop up the other day which then makes me wonder of like the,
1: are they creating yet another currency and how do no, like, if be- it's straight transfers then i mean sort of yes they didn't offer that detail when um when we, when I was on the call with them, if it truly is just a transfer thing, that's not even near, that's not
0: nearly as impressive.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, then what do you have to do? You apply for this credit
2: card and say, "I want the points to go to this program" at the get go,
0: because then they have to calculate the rate, right? The yeah, yes, I mean,
2: that can be a, I mean, that can be a logistical challenge over time.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like transfers are what they are, I, whatever. But I that was, I think they, they left a lot of this very confusing i i did not understand it to be a um a straight trade I, I did not understand it to be a straight transfer thing or at least that wasn't explicitly stated i, I, I heard redeem for travel on all programs
2: so um, but then you're creating another uh program yeah right so then like they're not competing
1: with their members programs right which seems counterproductive yeah, some people are saying it's transferable, but I don't think that's been explicitly stated by the alliance.
0: I mean, I think that's the key, right? Is like we don't know enough to to make a definitive.
2: And uh, My guess is they don't know enough
1: either. No, <laughs> the, I mean, they do. They've at this point the deal, the paperwork's all signed. So,
0: did they say who was going to issue the credit card? No, bank?
1: they didn't. They didn't offer a name of a bank or a, or a geography. And so that right, the geography is the interesting one. Is if you take the assumption that they're not going to pe- compete with any of their existing's. Mm-hmm. UK is the best I can come up with
0: because there's no carrier in the there's UK. No,
1: there's no Starlines carrier in the UK, but enough people that are vaguely keen on Starlines mm-hmm. members there, and it's a market where the banking infrastructure and credit cards sort of adoption and per- penetration market and market penetration, whatever, makes sense. So
0: yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about pilot shortages because we haven't talked about this enough. Uh, what are what are the proposals that are coming out?
1: So, uh, Mesa Republic Airways um, came up with the idea that its pilots should be able to start flying at seven hundred and fifty hours instead of fifteen hundred hours of training, and or minute of flight time, and based it on the idea that they would have you know it's sort of the ab initio style of. They are going to be trained specifically to be commercial airline pilots in the Republic Airways way, such that they'll be, you know, learning the program better, and it will be a more aggressive training regimen. So the hours are "quote unquote" worth more, if you will, uh, towards being a commercial airline pilot. And the uh, parallel they draw is that if you are a U.S. military pilot at 750 hours, you are actually eligible to become a commercial airline pilot. You don't need full 1,500. And it's because the style of training is different, essentially. And they're trying to say they're going to alter their training program to make it such that it is more efficient and more effective at making airline pilots. And so instead of flying, you know, either being teachers or banner towing in Cessnas for, you know, eight hours a day, mind-numbingly turning circles in the sky.
0: I mean, I get it. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to feel about it.
1: Yeah, I, the part that surprises me the most is, in some ways, is unions pushing back on it. They but, don't want it. Alpa is opposed, um, and I'm I'm a little unclear on that because I would think it's a good way to increase union membership. So I'm not sure why it's bad in that context. The, some of the pilots I've interacted on with are, have said there's two different other things. One is I don't want to be the person training the pilot who's sitting mm-hmm. next to me, which, okay, fair. But like in most jobs in life, if you're the senior person, there's going to be some engagement and you know learning involved. So fine. At least in my professional experience, I found that both as the mm-hmm. <laughs> senior person and the junior person, but also the uh, there's a number of people that say, well, this is just going to destroy the pipeline even further because we won't have enough people to do the training because a decent number of pilots get their 1500 hours by working as instructors, getting paid not nearly enough money to fly around four to six hours a day. If they're lucky um, to build up to 1500 hours over 18 months and then can finally switch and go and get a real job. And it's the, like the idea that this is going, this is going to be what means we can't train more pilots is kind of bizarre to me. I also just don't understand why the industry has settled on, we'll let the people that aren't commercial airline pilots train people how to become commercial airline pilots.
0: I also, I also, I also don't really buy that argument. I mean, a lot of, I have friends who are instructors and, you know, a number of instructors are commercial pilots who they do it in their free time. Like they just want to go fly. And so they, Teach other people how to fly because they enjoy yeah. it. So I don't. I don't completely agree that it's most of the, Well, I mean, I think I think there is some. I mean, there's certainly yeah. people who are like you know they go and do their training and then they go and train others and that's how they get their hours. And then does, they fly.
1: Does that count against their commercial pilot hour quotas?
0: Uh, what the... do
1: it, like flying a training like doing teaching wouldn't count against their... because right pilots can only work a certain number of hours. Yeah, it doesn't. per month per year. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I get, it, yeah. I don't, okay. I, I don't think it cuts over at all.
1: Yeah. Which makes sense. I just, and I get like some people, some pilots don't want to also be instructors and that's, that's fine. That's good. I shouldn't be a teacher for anybody on anything. And I understand that. And like there's just certain personalities where it doesn't work. So yeah. don't do that. But that doesn't mean other people can't or shouldn't. And that it's not part of, you know, working in an environment. I'm like, if I'm the senior engineer on a networking project, the new guy is going to learn things from me and I have to be ready to, I they, they have to be ready to work with someone who doesn't know 100% of everything about the project. I, you know, I would like to think that as a pilot, you would know a little more than some of the junior people I've had working with on networking projects. And also the risks are much, the stakes are much lower on a computer network, but whatever.
0: Well, and um, honestly, like let's, let's think about it this way, right? Like if Mesa Republic is training someone for 750 hours, basically in, in the Mesa way, Right Those people aren't going to come in green to the cockpit with you, Like right. they're and gonna come in with some working knowledge of how it works, so
1: a lot you would assume and so right that's exactly. part of the mesa argument and uh Sully is against it the not surprisingly the families of the Colgan air crash came out against it, so I don't see this actually happening i don't and and the f a a has historically shown an aversion to uh altering man safety-related mandates that are co- sort of congressionally issued. yeah. Um, and Congress, I think, explicitly allowed for the military training one and did not allow for this. And so it would be an exemption of being like, no, this is sort of like military training. I don't think the FAA is going to be willing to say that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I
1: don't think it's going to happen. But, but wait, there's more. Uh, Southwest's pilot union shared a memo with its membership last week indicating that there's discussion around Uh, legislation in Congress to raise the retirement age for pilots from 65 to 68.
0: I'm okay with that. I'll be interested to see how many pilots actually choose to stay till 68 because I bet they're still eligible at 65.
1: I'm sure they'd be retirement
0: eligible. Um, but you know what so, I mean? Like they're still gonna yeah. be eligible. So they, who, can wants know? to keep working? Exactly. I mean, I, I guess right now in this in this economic cluster that we're in, uh, yeah. maybe you do. But. I don't
1: know. I mean, United went on record as saying most of their senior pilots that are in that age group are making like three three hundred fifty thousand bucks a year or something like that.
0: That's that's my point. Yeah. I
1: mean, um, <laughs> do that for three more years. And, and, <laughs> well, yeah, right. Like that's good money. I don't know how much. You know, obviously it depends on savings and what the pension plans look like and and and. But um one of the interesting things that came up, and I I misunderstood this initially, but uh they probably wouldn't be able to fly international routes.
0: Because of overseas rules?
1: So ICAO provided guidance of what it what it one should, you know, what it should be to qualify as a commercial airline pilot and staffing rules, among other things. And one of the guidelines presented, which most countries have adopted, is that you tap out at 65. Mm. Uh, the U S adopted that. It was actually 2007. The age went up from 60 to 65 uh, in line with this IKO guidance. And when I, I was, you know, my initial response was the IKO never mandates anything. IKO provides guidance and then countries choose to adopt how they adopt. Yep. And that may be a little bit of semantics, but not every country always adopts the IKO standards as written. Uh, but in the case of the U.S., foreign airlines operating into the U.S. operate under Part 129. It's a sort of separate, very similar to regular commercial operations, but it's slightly different. But the Part 129 rules explicitly state we incorporate this ICAO Annex 1, which is the pilot licensing, uh, period. Like, it's just you know, you must be qualified under that. And so mm-hmm. if we take the assumption that other countries have done similar, and I, I dug around a little bit, I don't know how to find those things in other countries as well. But assuming that other countries are very similar, that would mean that if, you know, for years 66, 67, and 68, those pilots would not be eligible to fly international markets, uh, which, if one of the reasons they make that much money is they're flying the wide-body aircraft and they're very senior uh, Yeah. Yeah, they, they take a pay
0: cut because of this?
1: That's the question. So potentially if they had to switch back to only domestic flying, you might have to move to a smaller aircraft, uh you might have to move to a different and less uh pleasing schedule. Yep. Right doing three or four hops a day on a 737 is very different than flying a 777 to Europe, spending the night and then coming home. Yep. So and oh, by the way, all that does kick the can down the road because not everyone's going to keep doing it. Not everyone's going to stay qualified, right? You still got You got to get a medical every six months after you turn 60, not every year.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and, and like right? all those things add up. Like not every pilot is going to want to do it. And so that doesn't help fill the funnel of training. It just slows down the other problems.
0: Yeah. I, I, wonder, I wonder if it's just like a, they're going to do it as a stopgap, you know? Yeah, and, but...
1: Without other actions as well, it feels pretty.
0: No, so. well, no, I'm with you. I just I'm trying to figure out like because I don't know that those like that's that's some stuff that people like pilots. I don't know that pilots would be willing to give up those things right to to keep another three years, especially especially depending on the formula for um, your pension. Yeah. Right. If what what depending on what that formula is, it, if if I'm going to take three years of lower pay, and it's going to impact what I get as my pension, yeah, no thanks.
1: Yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. I hadn't considered that, but many pensions are based on last X number of years. Exactly. Yeah. Of salary. I mean, was it the? It's usually like, more?
0: it's usually what like the ten, last ten years or something, or seven years. Yeah. I can't remember.
1: That's how uh, retirement. That's how uh, what's it called? Works. Social Security works. Yep. Yep. But um. The NYPD, I think, was just your your final year.
0: Yeah, and you get a percentage so,
1: of that. And you get a percentage of that. And so there's, it, it's more or less a scam, but they would pull crazy overtime for the final year mm-hmm. so and cash out at a much more elevated rate.
0: <laughs> oh, Foz sounds like he's just loving this.
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, what you, you could potentially run into is a few people stay behind, but they're all going to fight for the few wide body routes left domestically.
0: Yeah, because they want to stay on a 777 or they want to stay on a 7-6. Yeah. Which then
2: really doesn't help the problem.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, speaking of pilots, there was an incapacitated pilot coming uh, back from the Bahamas. And uh, air traffic control talked to the passenger through landing the plane. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Let's hire him.
1: He needs 1,499 (laughs) and a half more hours of training. (laughs) It was a Cessna 208, right? Yeah, I think so. And and he, he, what's that? Was it a Cape airplane? No. (laughs) No, this is a private jet was flew from Fort Pierce, Florida over to Marsh Harbor in the Bahamas, picked up two passengers and turned around to fly back. Um, And then just off the coast, the pilot turned to the passengers like, I don't feel well. And like, slumped over on the controls and started to dive and one of the pass the passenger involved here pulled him off sort of pulled the stick back and got the plane level and got on the radar was like hey my pilot just got like I, there's a problem here my pilot we can't use my my pilot's not working what do I do um they's like well what do you see where are you it's like I don't know where I am they had to, <laughs> like in the plane uh they got the plane stable he's like, hey well, just like hold straight whatever and they had to find them on radar and do this thing, you know, whatever. Where to start? All that stuff. They found them. They found a. Turns out that speaking of pilot training, one of the controllers at the I think they transferred to Palm Beach Tower or Palm Beach Center, um, but is where they and is where they ended up landing. But a controller from Palm Beach also happened to be an instructor. Okay. And so, as an instructor, worked him through the process and helped, uh, helped him figure it all out. But you now. Hold it steady, come here, line up, put it down. Oh, no, that's where your brakes are. Little things like that, but got well, it on and, the ground and safely.
0: And and not only safely, but if you watch the landing, he greased it.
1: <laughs> yeah, he did. was <laughs> actually a really good landing.
0: Uh, I mean, and from what I understand is the guy the guy has no pilot experience, but is around a lot of people in aviation. So he has been in airplanes before and yeah. seen his friends fly. So, I mean, just a little bit of familiarity, I think, probably helped him. But, yeah, no... Yeah. flying experience himself. I,
1: I would like to think that my 15 minutes in a simulator at the Lufthansa Training Center in Arizona would give me a leg up on, you know, some I, people, but I don't know.
0: I feel like, I feel like on a prop, I think the hardest part would probably be the trimming of the plane because you, you trim yeah. a lot to keep it level and to do the things you want to do. Um, and also probably power management because it's, it's, it's a I mean, it's, you know, a 208, it's not a light plane by any means, but it's not a jet. So, Getting the guy to use, you know, keep the right speed and stuff and for a descent is definitely a little bit of a challenge. So, yeah, pretty cool. Um, Southwest is making some big investments in their planes two
1: billion dollars. Wow, what do you think that buys? Uh, slower headbands, Wi Fi, maybe. Uh, some uh, new Wi Fi on some of them, power ports. I actually think it's more significant than the Wi Fi. Uh, these, so these set. All the planes I think are are getting new bins, or the newer planes are getting bigger bins. So some planes will get that. The max fleet is gonna get power, but not the seven thirty-seven NGs. So the eight hundreds and seven hundreds won't, but the dash eights and dash sevens will. And then uh the max fleet going forward from Q4-ish, end of this year at some point, mm-hmm. will be via Sat instead of AnuVu, which is the new name for Global Eagle, which was the new name for Row Forty Four, which was the name that Southwest had, or the name that the supplier had when Southwest signed the contract originally a decade ago. Hmm. So um, it'll be—they aren't talking about pricing of the Wi-Fi. So who knows if it'll you know still be the eight dollars per day, or if it'll go to free at some point, or change. But um, yeah, it's going to be the new provider. So there's you know AnuVu slash Global Eagle gets plenty of. Complaints about the performance on Southwest, I would say, relatively speaking, it's up there with probably United in terms of people I know complaining about Wi-Fi on airplanes. Yep. So hopefully this helps in that front. I I actually, though, think that putting power, be in-seat USB-A and C at eye level on the tray table seat back um, for every seat not shared, I think that's going to be arguably more valuable in many ways to passengers than the Wi-Fi upgrade.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely nice. I, I It kind of sucks that they're not going to do it on the NGs or the 800s. But yeah. I, I mean, I, get, I, I don't really get that, though, because they they use their fleet so kind of randomly.
1: How much time do they left on the NG fleet?
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: I think that's probably, so I think that's a big part of it. A lot of those are, or not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, especially the older 700s, are, you know, over the next five, eight years, are probably on the way out. Yep. Um, I'm just assuming the... Dash seven, the max gets certified and starts delivering, but you know we can hope. Um, and then uh, also, I think with the as the max fleet grows, I would bet that they sort of start to adjust some of the operations so that the maxes start doing longer and longer hops mm-hmm. because of the fuel efficiency value there. Yeah. there'll be there'll be cash savings to the company to optimizing their aircraft scheduling, and that'll let them, you know, the NGs will be on the three hours and shorter flights, and the maxes will be on the longer ones, and that'll help alleviate yes. some of those challenges.
0: So, I mean, you have a little bit of experience with this, set. Like, does this mean they basically replace all the seats in the maxes to, to install this? Like, it, or do they retrofit seats that are already in the planes?
1: My guess would be they do it as sort of a swing project where you get a couple sets of seats built with the cabling and everything in them and these jacks installed. Mm-hmm. And you, and I mean, you can almost literally have an assembly line where you're pulling seats out the front door and sliding new ones in the back door and bolt the new ones down and plug them in and do it on an overnight sit or maybe a, I would be surprised if it took more than an overnight, uh, maybe two days um, of a maintenance visit
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you take that set that you just pulled off and you retrofit those gotcha. and slide them into the next plane and you, you know, it takes a little bit of time on the ground to prep them and put the cabling in and whatever and get the jacks installed but if you've got a few sets ready to go, you can sort of constantly have a set of not spare, but new seats ready to be installed on the next plane that comes in mm-hmm. and not because you, the seats are crazy expensive. You wouldn't throw all the seats that you've been buying over the, for your fleet away. And, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: That's what I figured was.
1: Be and buy all brand new seats just to put power outlets in them. Yeah. Um, but that's my guess is how they'll do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about United's IFEC update.
1: So this is uh Project Next, they called it. This was last June United announced that all their single aisle planes were getting the full suite of in-seat screens and Bluetooth pairing and updated Wi-Fi and all that fun stuff. Uh since last June, United has converted. How many planes do you think they've converted? One. I'd say fifty. Zero. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> there are sixteen aircraft in the fleet that have the new system. There are sixteen new Max 8 deliveries. Uh, supply chain. The supplier Panasonic Avionics is having trouble getting enough parts to have these seats ready to swap in. Basically, I did notice that the newer
2: um, uh, that the AV systems are now running on Android, not X Windows.
1: Anyways, we finally come out of the nineties. Yeah, the new Panasonic system. <laughs> I don't know if it's been on Android for a while, but the uh, United you know, hasn't had it.
0: So. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, other airlines have had Android based IFEs for a while, but no, it's a, and that's not just the Panasonic system. The other major suppliers are generally running on Android custom builds, but Android builds as well. Um, so yeah, it's not good news. I will say United's PR team, once I finally got them to understand the question I was asking, um, took, (laughs) which took longer than I hoped, uh, claims that they still expect to meet the goal of 2025 to complete the project. Um, but admits that the sort of year by year targets to get there uh, are going to have to adjust. So um, we shall see.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, not, and
1: yeah, not great news, but obviously, you know, you hear supply chains, circuit board challenges sort of all over the place. There's always an aviation angle.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Uh, United 764s are now coming back into the fleet and this time with Polaris seats. Um I think we we've talked about the 764s and initially we had said they're kind of going to go the way of the dodo.
2: They're uh, I mean some of them are already back in the fleet at this point, but I think what's happening is some of them are getting well they're going to all get the new seats finally, right? That was the one they were non-committed on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they kind of United had said we don't think we're going to convert the 764s because we think we're going to retire them before we need the seats. And uh I think uh, with 787 delays and uh, other things, they're saying they need the planes at this point on well, the seven six uh,
2: the triple seven X delays.
0: Yep. So, uh, yeah, coming to you soon. Some Polaris seats on these these bad boys. Yeah,
2: and but, reasonably high J config, isn't it? No, it's you lose plus five you J, J seats. It goes from thirty nine okay.
0: to thirty four. Oh, okay, I misread that. Do you yeah, get you, you get true premium economy though.
2: You do get pre- true premium economy. Overall, it's just a loss of I think like nine seats. Uh, economy plus goes shrinks by more than fifty percent.
0: Hmm. So now, so now, now you're really hoping for that upgrade. Is the, the way it's it's going with United? It's
1: actually interesting that they shrink economy plus that much. Then it's it has gotten smaller on a lot of the planes when they put premium economy on board the premium plus. But I don't feel like it's gotten that much smaller.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, it, I believe you. I'm just yeah. It's
0: a, it's it is kind of amazing. The but by that by, by that reduction, it's that's a lot of seats. So. Um, and speaking of new stuff for United, there's a new United club at Newark. Have you been able to go, Foz?
2: I don't think it's open yet. Right, it opens this week.
0: Oh, is it this week? Okay, so I a lot of people been C3 getting. In the C3 pier. Yep, yeah. this is in the C3 pier, the big, big pier, and it's apparently the largest United club in the system. Or will oh, be? I think I guys, I sent
2: you guys a picture of it a few weeks ago when I was down in that area. From the oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean. It, from the outside it looks nice, but downstairs, I mean, they've at least, you know, the problem with that area, that particular uh, area of the pier is they've got like five gates on each of the corners mm-hmm. and leave it to United to always have all five flights active at the same time. <laughs> so I, I do wonder, cause they took a lot of the gate space away from one of those gates. So I do wonder what's going to happen in that hallway now.
0: So they, and that's another, that's a good question too. Cause they're like wide-body the, gates. Yeah, yeah, they are. Well, in they also used to have the, the Tel Aviv flight out there, which required the extra security area. Which they um,
2: still do. They've got two gates. Uh, one uh, is 137 or 138 right at the end of that pier, right in the middle of that. And then mm-hmm. the other is 120 or 121 on the – as you're coming down the pier, it's the first uh, set of gates. So they still have the walls up, uh, but they come and go depending on that flight, right? If the flight's – if they're sealing it off for that flight, then they'll put the walls up. Otherwise, they'll take them, take them down.
0: I just feel like it's going to be a little chaotic when the Tel Aviv flight, like around the entrance to the United Club. You don't don't even need that.
2: It's like United at Newark. It's always going to be chaotic. (laughs) Uh,
0: The club looks nice, though, uh, from the pictures I've seen. It does have shower suites, uh, which is a change for United um, at the United Clubs because they've kind of gone with the Polaris Lounge as their premium product. um, And that's where the showers and stuff are. But to have a shower option at a United Club is definitely a welcome change. Um, hopefully it's kind of the way forward. Maybe um, we'll
2: redo the San Francisco club next.
0: thats I was actually going to bring that up because that's like the one club. We, got, we were talking to a mutual friend of ours that that club is like, it's in the F gates, the F gate area where kind of the, I guess you come off the moving walkways and you enter the food court. It's like right at the food court area. Um, and that club is like something straight out of the eighties. It feels like um, with the, with the black toilets and all. <laughs> so. Do they have
2: black toilets in that one? I don't
0: remember. I think the urinals are. I can't remember.
1: I know. It's it's the giant model ship. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. Like model boat in the airplane club, airline club that always gets me.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Good window. Good views, though. I like the window seats.
0: Yeah. It's one. just it's always impossible to find seating in that club. Well, and those
2: chairs are so worn down. You sit down, and you sink another eight inches. <laughs>
0: I, w- I went in there, I don't know, had to been last year sometime, and I was waiting on a connection, and there had to have been 30 people lined up for drinks at the bar. And I'm like, what? What is happening? I, like, they had like six bartenders working, and they couldn't get enough drinks served. So anyway, they need to fix that one next. That's my vote. Um, Air France, new cabins on some 777s. Yes,
1: they've got a dozen 777s that are sort of their oldest uh layout today. Uh our oldest theoretically premium layout today, where they have the what they call Caribbean and Indian Ocean CIO mm-hmm. layouts that are like premium economy and economy only super high density. But these are regular premium 77W's. It's a 232 business class. It's their old old business class mm-hmm. product. And they're gonna update it. They're gonna do uh basically uh one two one reverse herringbone. They're doing uh what else? Uh 17 inch screens, new Wi Fi. Wi Fi is going to be on board. All, all that jazz. Uh, a real premium economy cabin uh, with the new seats, similar to the A350. Updated economy, no first class. But the planes that they're replacing didn't have first class, so that's I originally misunderstood that, and so it's not quite as big a loss as I thought it was. But uh, actually, slightly fewer seats on board in the new mm-hmm. layout, but way more premium. So
0: interesting. I mean, because they've been pretty on some of those planes, they're pretty heavy. Like they're pretty like dense. As yeah. far as getting people down to what is it, uh, reunion and the Seychelles, yeah, um, stuff like that. So it's, it's it's good news for passengers for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is there's there's no I got no complaints about this one. I, th- I think the seats look nice. Um, it's uh, I think it's a good a good setup overall.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, we got some bonus topics that are come up for our Patreon subscribers, including uh, street pricing. Uh, London Heathrow trimming the passengers per hour and uh, Hawaiian investing in some boats, maybe. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, stay tuned for that. If you're not, you'd like to join, feel free. We'd love to have you as a Patreon subscriber. Uh, but we do appreciate you listening to the show. Leave a comment, leave feedback. We'd like to hear from you. At Dots Lines on Twitter, more more com. Until next time, happy travels. Take care. Catch you later.